0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Guy Rogers about his book titled For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, published by Yale University Press in 2022, I believe. Yes, 2022. Um, this book is a deeply researched and insightful investigation really of the causes course and historical significance of the jews failed revolt against rome from 66 to 74 ce that included amongst all of this the destruction of the temple in jerusalem Um, this is a really interesting book that both goes into a lot of really fine-grained detail and looks at the strategy and the wider political aspects of um, this piece of history, which is quite an impressive thing to do in one book. So I'm excited to talk to Dr. Guy Rogers on the podcast. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Could we please start off with you introducing yourself a bit, your academic background, and then especially why did you decide to write this book?
0: Right. So um, I studied classics as an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, and then went over to Britain and did a, another undergraduate degree at University College London, studying ancient history. And then I came back to the States and did my PhD in classics and ancient history at Princeton. And I was one of those extremely lucky people in the mid-1980s who applied for uh, an academic position. And in fact, the very first job I ever applied for was to Wellesley College. And for some strange reason, I got the job. And that's sort of where I've been um, ever since. So that's a little bit of my academic background. Um, the, The origins of the book actually lie in my experience at University College London when I was studying ancient history there, there was a, um, a professor, um, the late Sir Fergus Millar, who uh, taught um, a seminar <clears throat> that was entitled The Early Rise of Christianity in Its Historical Context. It turned out that the uh, seminar had very little to do uh, with Christianity and a lot to do with Josephus, whose... Um, really the main source for the, the revolt of Jews against Romans starting in 66 CE. So I was sort of hooked at that point already in the late 1970s. And then I was kind of working on other research vectors, but I always really intended to come back um, to this subject And when I started to delve into um, the research, I found some things that I thought were sort of uh, puzzling about um, what had happened with the scholarship um, about the war. Um, It seemed to me that um, the whole focus had sort of turned in the direction of looking at Josephus as sort of a, you know, um, a reader or a um, someone who uh, had a kind of view of war and and history, which is fine, and uh, I certainly learned a lot from that scholarship. But at the end of the day. I sort of asked myself, why is it that people really care um, about um, this period in history and the war itself? And the reality is that as important as Josephus is, and he is our main source for what happened, uh, what people really care about, of course, is the destruction of the temple and also the aftermath of that and the, the siege of Masada and Than kind of how the interpretation of what happened between 66 and 74 influenced both Roman history and Jewish history ever since. So that was kind of where I found myself around 2010 or so, and I decided that I should really go back and read Josephus and um, all the other um, ancient sources uh, very carefully and look at the archeology span as well. And um, something else kind of struck me, which is that uh, there was very little uh, written about the war as a war. Um, people, scholars were interested um really in kind of the interpretation of it more in the, than in the causes, the course of the war, and then just the factual uh, details of what happened afterward. And there was virtually nothing that I came across about the strategies of both sides, the logistics and the tactics that they, that they used. So just to kind of sum this up, the dominant sort of scholarly view seemed to be that the outcome of this war was inevitable. Um, and therefore we didn't really have to bother, um, with the, uh, with the details. And, um, so one of the vectors of my own research, um, between 1986 and this project was warfare in the ancient world, um, and religion and what I knew from that is that, in fact, there's nothing inevitable in warfare. So what I set out to do was to try to explain to people why the Romans won, why the rebels lost, and what the significance of the victory has been for um, for history, and especially for the modern world. Because it turns out that, um, in some sense, this war is a special and different kind of war because the reverberations of what happened in the middle of the first century in Judea are kind of um, present in a way that say, um, the Peloponnesian War or the Punic Wars um, don't have the same kind of influence over the way people think about reality or especially live their lives. So,
1: Well, those are some some good reasons to write the book. Um, And I must say, as a a reader, um, I feel sort of justified now. Um, One of the reasons I was interested in reading the book is, as a scholar of war, I had heard of this war, but never could quite come to grips of it through my own academic background and knowledge it always sort of seemed something like oh well you had to you have to study the ancients to really understand that or you have to be be studying theology to really understand that one it's like well it is a war surely there's that angle to it um and one of the reasons i was interested in the book was i hadn't come across that angle before and therefore found it really hard to get to grips with what had happened um so i feel sort of justified hearing you say that in your very extensive knowledge of the scholarship um that also seemed to be a gap Um, But I want to kind of start with by expanding a bit. You've already mentioned Josephus being sort of both a really important source, but also hinted at some ways in which he might also be a problematic source. So beyond the fact that for a lot of these events, he's the main person whose words we now have, that obviously gives importance to him. Why else? Why was he important? What kind of is his background that makes him important? Um, but why should we be quite cautious of him as a source, particularly for these events?
0: Right. Well, I think your, your first question and answering this question are, are connected because um, Josephus, in a certain sense, has kind of cast a spell over um, the war and its interpretation. So I'll explain that semi-Delphic statement in, in a second, um, so Josephus, um, was born in 37 CE, very likely, and came from a, um, a well-known family. His father was a priest, actually came from the first course of the, uh, priestly courses in Judea. And his mother apparently was related to the Hasmonean royal dynasty. Um, Josephus wrote a lot, and in uh, what's commonly called his life or um, autobiography, he talks a little bit about being interested as a a young man, as a teenager, in the different kind of philosophies of um, Judaism during the first century and studying them all. So he was sort of a precocious young man, obviously uh, literate um, well, if largely sort of self-educated apparently. And then um, again, when he was quite young at the very beginning of the war, he was appointed to be one of the generals on the the rebels um, side as it were. And given responsibility for, um, the organization of the defense or, uh, offense, uh, as the case may be in the Galilee's and Gamla up on the Golan Heights. And, um, so, so he was a war leader and then very famously, uh, one year into the war in 67, <clears throat> he, uh, supervised the defense of, um, a town called Jotapata or Yodfat. Um, and, um, there's a very famous account of that defense in, um, in his book on the war. And, um, at the end of, um, uh, the Roman siege of Jotapata, Josephus, um, surrendered to the Romans and went over to the other side and spent the rest of the, um, war essentially, uh, working for, uh, the Roman, the guy who would become the Roman emperor Vespasian and his son Titus trying to convince his fellow Jews to, um, give up. He was present at the siege and destruction of the temple And in the aftermath of the destruction, went to Rome and began work on his account of the war and then some other uh, works as well. So he is indeed our main um, narrative literary source. Um, There are other um, Latin or Greek writing sources for aspects of the war, and of course, we have uh, a lot of archeological data, but, but he is the one who kind of set the, the parameters for the interpretation, including this idea that the reason why the, the Jews or the Jewish rebels lost this war was because um, God um, was punishing um, the Jews for the, the sins of um, the war leaders, whom in his Greek text he calls tyrants. So there probably aren't that many people around today um, who see the war and its outcome as a, um, a direct uh, result of sort of divine um, intervention but out of the Josephine model for how and why the war uh, happened and then ended the way it did has stuck this idea that, um, that the Jews were going to lose no matter what because of um, their actions. And in some sense, um, that's one of the things that my book is kind of arguing against. I'm I want uh, readers to um, see that there are military decisions related to uh, logistics and, and strategy, um, which also played a, a major role in the war's outcome.
1: So now that we sort of have that foundation, right, One, some of the gaps <clears throat> that your book is looking to fill are kind of the arguments trying to contest and a really helpful introduction of kind of, one of the main figures and how that's shaped the discourse. Um, I'd love to, in sort of my next series of questions, kind of ask you to explain some of the key um, events and concepts and political realities that you uh, analyze in the book to make that argument that the outcome of this war was not inevitable and that there were a lot of different things happening here um, that maybe sometimes we over-reduce based on these particular accounts. So, I'm going to sort of move chronologically kind of for the next few questions um, to start off with, can you explain sort of before violence erupts, we have uh, King Herod, which doesn't necessarily sound to an immediate connotation as like a peaceful King. Um, but you demonstrate in the book, what is his model of governance or maybe compromise um, how exactly does he kind of manage all the moving parts of this particular Roman territory, and then how does this break down, giving us the foundation or the the, the pieces of the that can become the fire later on?
0: Right. So the reason why Herod is important for this story is that Herod um, essentially was made king of this sort of core area of. Um, Judea and Samaritans and the pariah and part of southern Syria by the Roman Senate as far back as 40 BCE. It took him a few years to sort of um, defeat all of his rivals for rule over this kingdom. But from about, um, let's say, 37 or so to his death in 4 BCE, Herod was the guy who um, ruled over this kingdom, which was expanded um, a bit because of his success, sort of with um, an iron fist, but at the same time, um, making a lot of um, innovations, renovations, subsidizing institutions and structures, Uh, both within his kingdom and the wider Eastern Mediterranean. And um, there was kind of a a strategy behind all of this, um, which you can sort of deduce when you look at it all in detail, definitely within his kingdom. So starting out from the core in Judea, in places where Jews were in a majority, Herod was pretty careful to follow um, Jewish law. Um, There there weren't places where there were graven images introduced and things like that. And um, although in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem, there may have been a Roman-style hippodrome, in general, um, as I say, in the places where, where Jews were in a minority, he was fairly um, scrupulous about uh, observance of the law. In places where Greeks or so-called Syrians were in the majority, those are places where um, Herod had no problem subsidizing baths or hippodromes or theaters. Um, And so... um, I think that the way to look at Herod is as a king who um, was looking at the different ethnic groups who were technically his subjects and trying to accommodate and be sensitive to their own cultural and religious traditions. There also were places where there were um, mixtures, for instance, Caesarea um, on the coast. And there, actually, the Greeks and the Syrians were probably in a majority, but there was a significant uh, Jewish minority. And those turn out to be kind of flashpoints for um, conflict later in the first century. Herod also was a very shrewd uh, political operator and he um, at first had been a, um, a, his family actually had been a supporter originally of the Roman general Pompey. And then after Pompey's death, um, his family uh, turned their attention to Julius Caesar. And then after Julius Caesar's assassination, uh, he was supported by um, by Mark Anthony. and after Anthony's defeat by Octavian, the guy that would become Augustus, Herod just turned uh, his loyalty over to Octavian. So um, so he kind of rode that Roman horse. And as long as he had that Roman backing, um, Herod, um, Herod's position was basically, um, invulnerable. So, of course, there's another side to Herod, which is about, um, you know, his ruthlessness and his, his treatment of his family. But basically, the argument in my ma- that I make in my book is that Herod's model is a model of a ruler in a, a dangerous neighborhood, a difficult neighborhood, with the the Parthians, a kind of Iranian regime, sitting on the other side of the Euphrates River, and then of course the Romans, <clears throat> based in the Western Mediterranean, but by Herod's time, over in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. And then there's um, Judea, kind of in the middle of this. Herod found a way um, to be both um, Jewish, uh, a Jew and also a Roman. He was a Roman citizen. And that's what I mean by the Herodian compromise. And as long as he had that Roman backing uh, during his long reign, um, that kind of compromise model was one that um, he was going to promote. And for I would say roughly a decade or two after his death, um, there was still a lot of support among Jews for that compromise model. But gradually, over the course of the first century, so from about 6 CE to 66, um, it's pretty clear that th- there were um, an increasing number of Jews who did not think that it was possible um, to be both uh, Roman and Jewish. They rejected the Herodian Compromise so that by 66 or so, which is the when the war breaks out, um, there were literally, there were tens of thousands of, of Jews um, who um, rejected Roman rule altogether and frankly, wanted um, independence.
1: Which is a pretty big shift from sort of that compromise. Um, So obviously, we're not going to be able to go into it in the same amount of detail as the book does, though I definitely recommend the detail of the book. It is quite fascinating how things change so much in a span of a few decades. Um, But to continue kind of the, I suppose, main events questions, I guess, um, you mentioned logistics in an earlier answer, and we're definitely going to get to that. But maybe we could start off by looking at kind of this breakdown idea of tensions between Jews and Rome. Um, how was this war and the tensions before the war about ideas, as well as, of course, the tactics and logistics that make such an impact when the war actually starts? What's the war of ideas kind of going around in the build-up and then throughout?
0: Right. So... Um... <clears throat> So after after Herod's death, there was kind of a uh, an intermediate period when one of his sons was appointed to be what they call uh, an ethnarch, which means a, a a ruler of a of a people. So he wasn't Herod wasn't succeeded immediately by this guy Archelaus as a king, and probably the reason for that is that um, Augustus understood that. Herod was sort of uniquely suited to be a ruler over, um, different kinds of ethnic groups and also mixes of ethnic groups in, in towns and, and cities and villages. Um, I think Augustus wasn't so confident that his successors would be able to carry that off. And so, um, So for about 10 years or so, this guy Archelaus was in charge and, uh, 10 years in, um, a bunch of Jews and Samaritans went to Augustus and said that Archelaus was, um, no longer, uh, tolerable. And so Augustus made the decision to appoint, um, people who are known as prefects, um, who had capital jurisdiction in this area and did have some sort of military muscle serving under them as well in the form of auxiliary troops. But a 100 miles away or so to the north, they also had a... Um, a legate, um, another kind of governor appointed directly by the emperor, who had serving legions under um, under him. So, um, so that was kind of the the structure of authority from the Roman point of view in the area. And in the local um, scene, of course, there were the the high priest most of whom after six or so were appointed or at least uh, validated um, by the the Roman governors themselves. So within Judaism or Judaisms, there had always been um, different groups who had different ideas about the desirability of being ruled over by... Any king, uh, let alone let alone a um, a Roman emperor, and so over the course of the first century, um, I think that the um, the kind of the 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 conflicts within Judaism, within the different so-called philosophies, as Josephus calls them. That is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the so-called fourth philosophy. Um, those lines uh, become harder uh, than they'd been earlier on. And then there's kind of um, the um, the issue of the the structure of Roman authority versus the reality of Roman authority when we talk about the administration of the Roman Empire, we talk in terms of emperors and legates in Syria and prefects in Judea. Um, The reality is that the system was one in which um, who those people were um, mattered a lot more to how people experienced Roman rule than just the titles. And so therefore, um, the attitudes of individual Roman emperors toward the Jews And also their governors and their attitude toward the Jews had a huge effect um, on the life experiences of people um, in the province itself. So, for example, on the local side of things, um, there were um, legates in Syria and, and prefects who went out of their way uh, to learn about um, Jews and Jewish history and did their best um, to try to accommodate Roman policies to to the facts on the ground. And then there were people like Pontius Pilate, the most famous of the prefects, who, of course, is um, most famous um, because it was during his... Uh, prefecture that um, this guy Yeshua or Jesus uh, was executed by his order, probably in April of 33. But um, if you read Josephus and other sources closely, uh, you begin to understand that Pontius Pilate also um, tried to, do some things in Judea that could well have caused uh, a revolt uh, much earlier than the the Great Revolt. So Pontius Pilate's inclusive dates are probably between 26 and 36 CE, which was a long period as governor. During that time period, at one point, he attempted to introduce into Jerusalem some shields. Gilt shields, which had um, inscriptions on them, and the inscriptions usually on these sort of ceremonial shields, um, usually made reference to the um, the sitting Roman emperor, but also um, to the um, the emperors that they were descended from. So, in this case, from twenty six to thirty six, that would be Tiberius, um, who was descended from um, supposedly, um, uh, uh, Augustus and Julius Caesar, both of whom had been deified after their deaths. So, um, so introducing Shields, which made a claim about uh, a mortal being deified was problematic for many people. And at one point he also Uh, had the idea of introducing um, Roman military standards into Jerusalem. And on those standards were depictions of the the faces or the busts of uh, the Roman emperors as well, which was equally problematic. So there were governors who, I think, in fact, um, created um, opposition uh, within Judea. And then, of course, there were um, Roman emperors. The uh, most notorious of which is Gaius slash Caligula, who had the brilliant idea of um, forcing the Jews to accept the introduction of a, a statue of himself um, into the into the temple um, itself, which nearly caused a um, a revolt at the time. Um, it was it was really only avoided because the the governor of Syria at the time, this guy Publius Petronius, sort of stalled and then got lucky because uh, Gaius was um, assassinated. So, um, and then finally, I would say that um, something maybe a little bit different about my book is that I argue that. Really, Nero is the one who made the decisions um, that kind of lit that fuse uh, that started the war. And the first decision was in 61 uh, CE, kind of awarding to the, the non-Jewish residents of Caesarea control over that city, so the, the Greeks and the so-called Syrians, which essentially... Made the um, the Jewish residents in the city into foreigners in the in the city, and in the aftermath of that, um, not all of them, but some of the Greeks and Syrians in the city took took that as a a green light to then um, make Jews in the city as uncomfortable as they could. Um, So, for instance, by um, making um, a sacrifice in front of um, a synagogue, a sacrifice of some birds, a deliberate provocation um, in the spring of 66, which is really um, when the war, as it were, um, began. So that's kind of the backdrop for what was going on both among Jews and then uh, Romans from the aftermath well, and of I think,
1: her- Well, and I think listeners from that will quite clearly understand why the idea of an inevitable war starts to look a little bit less obvious. Um, there are so many different tensions going on, right, from the governor level down to the population, but also kind of amongst the governors, right? the idea of sort of political whiplash in a way, going all these different methods. And then of course, relations with the emperors and how the emperors are this. There's a lot going on here and it's not maybe as simple as it otherwise would appear. So thank you for sort of mapping that out for us um, in a way. And we're now, we have the fuse, right? We've got the sacrifices in front of the synagogue. We've got the kind of permission or perception of permission granted. Um, We've got these governors that have set the stage of kind of not... Uh, being as careful about Jewish um, customs and culture as Herod had been. So then we end up with a war. And again, perhaps against the scholarly grain so far, uh, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about, as you mentioned at the beginning, tactics and logistics and decision-making on the Roman side to explain kind of some of what happened next. So can you take us through maybe some of what we can better understand about kind of how Rome decided to fight this war? How can we better understand that when we actually think about things like logistics?
0: Right. So, um, so what I do in my book is I, I look at the, um, the military events of this war and then sort of make deductions about uh, Roman and Jewish strategy Based on the the data, so on the on the rebel side of things, after that, um, all those problems in Caesarea, sort of the the focus of activity moved over to Jerusalem, as it were, when the serving governor, this guy Florus, um, um, sort of. Uh, began a um, a kind of uh, problem with the civilian population of the city by going into the temple treasury and withdrawing a bunch of money from it and causing a riot. And in the aftermath of the riot, there were There were some massacres of civilians, both inside of Jerusalem and outside of that. And um, I think it it was at that point, as it were, that we're really talking about a a war. Um, And I think it's really important for people who want to understand um, what happened. This was the largest revolt against Roman rule uh, in the early Roman Empire and led to the the largest concentration of Roman forces in the early Roman Empire. That happened because of what Flores did, which was these two massacres. And um, I think that uh, it's important to realize that There were thousands of Jews who were killed and all of those people had mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers and all the rest of it. And once all of that blood had been shed, um, it was at that point that I think a war was inevitable. I don't think the outcome was inevitable, but a war was inevitable at that point point. So um after those massacres then all the people who were kind of on the fence um about Roman rule tended to come over to the side of the people who no longer uh were willing to uh put up with Roman rule and um and they um ejected. Um, They they killed many of the auxiliary soldiers who were in Jerusalem and then ejected um, the rest of them. And in effect, um, Jerusalem became a sort of um, free and independent city for the first time in a long time. The Romans um, sent down an army under this guy, Cestius um, from Syria and um, Cestius brought a large army with him, and it's with Cestius' army that I begin to kind of track uh, the logistics of the, of the Romans carefully. And what I kind of conclude about that is that this was sort of a uh, you know a disciplinary um, um, operation. and Cestius and the Roman emperor Nero thought that they could kind of intimidate the population into uh, submission. But as I argue too much blood had been shed already. And so as Castius's army was trying to make its way into Jerusalem, they were ambushed, um, actually both on the way in and the way out and lost, uh, thousands of, um, soldiers. So, um, So after that happened um, in Jerusalem, the leaders there got together and appointed generals um, that were sent out to the different areas in the region to organize defense against the inevitable kind of Roman reaction to it. And... It's at this point that I think that you can, t- can talk a little bit about the strategy and begin to develop a case for why um, the Jews ended up losing this war. Because as far as we can tell, um, the, the, the kind of basic strategy that they adopted was to, when the Romans came, to fall back and defend um, what had been sort of fortified or refortified villages and towns. And what that did was to draw the next couple of Roman armies, the first of which came commanded by Vespasian, the future Roman uh, emperor. Um, the Jewish strategy drew the Romans to those fortified towns and villages. I mean, the Romans had hundreds of years of experience with siege warfare. So toward the end of my book, in the kind of summary chapters about um, the causes and then course of the war, I sort of suggest that an alternative might've been a strategy of dispersal rather than um rather than bringing the Romans, as it were, um, to fortified places. Inevitably, what that was going to do, of course, was to draw them to to Jerusalem, the most highly fortified uh, place. And so um, that kind of determined the the logic of how the war uh, proceeded. Essentially, the war had... The, the war from 66 to 70 had sort of two phases. Phase one um, in 66, 67, when the Romans essentially conquered, uh, reconquered the, the northern part of what is today Israel, the Galilee uh, area and the Golan. And then there was an interlude period. Um, the Roman Emperor Nero died. Uh, was assassinated on the 9th of June of 68. And as a result of that, there was kind of a hiatus. Um, and Vespasian went off eventually to um, assert his claim to the Roman throne. And, and his son Titus was left to kind of finish the job of encircling and then besieging and taking um, Jerusalem. So that's sort of phase two of the war. But in many ways, it was um, just a, a much bigger version of what had happened at Yotapata and Gamla and other places as well.
1: So in these stages, though, and of course, I do want to highlight that the list of cities you've just uh, reeled off very quickly, uh, listeners should be aware that the sieges of those places is done in really useful detail in the book. So just because we're not going into them now, uh If you're interested in them please do read the book um but jerusalem in some ways is similar but is also distinct in some ways it is jerusalem right um it does kind of center a lot of the fighting as you said because of the tactics chosen um and yet it wasn't as simple especially in jerusalem as just kind of battle between the romans and the jews right you demonstrate that in jerusalem itself um there were quite a lot of tensions and in fact actual fighting between different Jewish groups while the Roman siege was essentially on its way and in fact um, happening. So why was there such significant fighting between groups in Jerusalem, even though the Romans were literally outside the walls?
0: Right. I mean, this goes back, um, to at least the beginning of the first century CE and some scholars would argue into the, the Hasmonean period, the sort of the period, um, of the Maccabees anyway, um, when these, um, different philosophies, Josephine philosophies differentiated themselves out, uh, from each other, um, originally over, um, Usually over questions of law and the interpretation of law, but but other issues as well. The difference in the first century CE and then what happens in Jerusalem in the um, in the sixties is that, in addition to kind of the. Um, you know the the strongly held disagreements about uh, major issues, major theological issues, what we would call theological issues. There were there were differences which related to um, where it where it was that the that people who eventually made their way to Jerusalem came from. So, for instance, there there was a group um, which came down. From uh, the northern Galilee to Jerusalem um, after sort of phase one and uh, the victories of Vespasian and Titus in 67, led by this guy, John of Giscala. So there was a a Galilean, Giscalan group um, who came down to Jerusalem and. John of Gascala, um, turns out to be kind of this, um, bette noir of Josephus. Um, and, um, Josephus has kind of nothing good to say about him, but obviously John of Gascala was for at least, um, his followers of whom there were thousands, um, of, a really important military leader. There was another, um, guy called, um, uh, Simon or Shimon bar Giora, um, who are not exactly where he sure, where he came from. His father, um, may have been a convert to Judaism. Um, so he was a guy who, um, brought another group into, um, into Jerusalem, um, after the outbreak of the... Uh, rebellion. And then there were a large number of Edomayans, so people who came from the area to the south of Jerusalem. So there are all these groups sort of vying for um, who was going to be the the leaders and make the decisions about um, how they should resist and fight against the against the Romans within the city um, when when Titus did show up in in 70 and literally started knocking um, at the walls of the city um, the the groups didn't band together under one leadership but there was cooperation um, among them so um, so there was they weren't unified, but also they were not disunited militarily. And the resistance in um, in Jerusalem was uh, really, really um, effective uh, when you consider that they were fighting against a, a large Roman army with um, with auxiliaries and allies and siege equipment and. Um, a logistical plan and all the rest of it. So,
1: well, and what's quite interesting in the book is you detail obviously um, the battles that you briefly mentioned, but a, a particularly Jerusalem, go into a lot of detail. And it is really interesting to see because um, you know when you see the whole weight of the Roman army, because you do also detail you know how big was it and what were the different component pieces of the Roman military that went on this expedition. You're like, okay, that siege is not going to go very well. And of course, it's not exactly a spoiler um, to say that. The Jews lost the siege of Jerusalem, um, that Jewish civilians had a pretty horrific experience inside the walls. Um, but also, it was quite surprising to understand just how much it was actually a battle. It's not like the Romans showed up and just automatically got everything they wanted. Um, no, so I, I really appreciated, particularly from a military history point of view, like that aspect of the book.
0: Tactically... Um, I mean, I, (laughs) there are a lot of, a lot of things in this, uh, research and in this book that, uh, all false modesty aside, I went comprehensively through them. Um, I didn't comprehensively go through every single tactical or kinetic, uh, interaction between Jews and Romans during this war, but... if we can believe, um, Josephus at all. And, you know, at a certain level, um, we don't, we don't have many alternatives when we're talking about the, the, the tactical encounters. In fact, um, Jews fighting in small groups often defeated the Romans in the tactical encounters often. Um, The problem for them was their inability to kind of follow up um, the tactical victories by pressing their advantage. And that's why I kind of suggest at the end of the book that given um, the successes that they had tactically, maybe fighting a different kind of war, not from behind um, the walls, but um, uh, a war a la the Maccabees, a hit and run kind of war where they... Um fought and then retreated and then fought and retreated, um, might have been they might have been able to wear the Romans down. Because um, something that I probably should have mentioned before is that the reason why, or one of the reasons why Nero needed um, this victory, is that um, Rome had, or a large part of Rome, had burned down in 64. Um, the Romans needed money to rebuild Rome, and um, a war of attrition might have um, been uh, something that could have forced the Romans to come to some sort of um, uh, compromise in the war. Um, so,
1: right. So, I want to then kind of Get to uh, this question. If we've we've already talked about some of it, and you've definitely given us some really great aspects of it, um, but you raised it kind of at the beginning. Was it inevitable that the Jews lost? And you've already suggested in your last answer, kind of good tactics, but not following it up. You know, choosing sort of the wrong type of strategy, retreating behind walls when really that plays to the Romans' favor. Um, was it? You know, big picture. Was it inevitable? What could they have done instead?
0: Right. Uh, Before I answer that, I want to just add that logistically as well, um, there's not a lot of good evidence for that. But what evidence there is suggests that a point that you were making before about um, the different groups who are involved in this war, um, that's an area where the disunity worked to uh, their disadvantage because Um, the one thing that sort of screams professional army for the Romans is their focus on logistics and supply and feeding their, their army and their animals and all the rest of it. And, um, unfortunately in the case of Jerusalem and the Jewish resistance there, um, the, the different groups were fighting it out, um, for those resources, often without thinking, I believe, about the, um, about the long term. So with that somewhat windy preface, um, I don't, I don't think that, that the outcome of this war was inevitable. I just think that, um, a divided leadership, um, that, didn't come to an agreement about what the, the goal of the war really was from the beginning and then had leaders who could kind of convince, um, the people who were willing to, to fight. And then, you know, the, the civilian backbone of the population, um, I don't think that they had leaders who could um, sell that effectively um, to the warriors and the civilians to um, to stick with um, a winning strategy over the long run. I say that um, sort of um, with humility, because it's very easy um, to sit back, uh, thousands of years later and to, um, say they should have done this or they should have done that. And I mean, we're scholars and, um, to the extent that we, that we can be, we try to be objective when we're looking at these events. Um, but that said, um, I I do try to be um, sympathetic and empathetic as well. And especially in this case, when you realize that um, the war we're talking about, which I've said uh, many times and and written many times, was the really the biggest revolt in, the early Roman empire. And it was a war of, um, an army, a professional army and a, a state structure, which had a, um, uh, a goal and an emphasis on war making versus a civilian society. So the civilian society in fact, did incredibly well. And one of the, one of the things that kind of surprised me about doing the research and writing up of this book is that, um, if you, if you read, um, this war really carefully, you realize that, um, you know, no army is invincible, including the Roman army. Um, Sometimes when you read scholarship about the Roman army, you get the sense that, you know, the Roman legions are invincible. No, they're not actually. Um, And this war proved it, Um, so.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more? Can you give us maybe an example of a way in which reading this super closely shows that the Roman legions are not quite as all-powerful as sometimes they seem?
0: Basically, um, with the siege of Jerusalem, the Romans broke through the final, the sort of inner wall only after really killing a large percentage, apparently of the, the able fighters that there were um, fighting behind those walls. So, so this wasn't, this wasn't like a lot of other ancient sieges where um you know, the defenders sort of gave up and, you know, took the deal as it were. That's not what happened. Um, What happened was um, they suffered so many casualties that there just were not enough people to send more people up to the wall, as it were, to keep the Romans out. So man for man, as it were, um, in these battles, the Roman legions, who, you know, had um, all of that training, all of that experience, um, they did not outfight them. Um, they they wore them down. Um, they won. They won this phase of the war, as it were, by by attrition, by human attrition. So, I think that what that does is just highlight the significance of morale in warfare. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is something, I mean, this war did not end. I mean, the Flavians, Titus, Vespasian, Domitian, um, the Flavian dynasty wanted people to believe that this war was over after um, the destruction of the temple and the conquest of Jerusalem, but it wasn't, um, it kept on going, um, including of course, arguably up to, um, the siege and conquest of Masada. But even after that, um, there were still groups of, uh, people who on that fundamental question of whether it was possible to have, um, a master other than God, there were groups that continued that resistance both in, in this area, but also in Egypt and in Libya and in elsewhere. So, um, you know, it is, I, when I teach my classes about warfare, I say to my students that th- the sharpest weapon ever uh, devised is, is an idea. Um, and when you when you have people who believe in these ideas, this is this is something that um, you know is a lot harder finally to defeat.
1: That makes sense. I'm, I'm glad um, you saw, I, I'm glad you explained that um because I think that that is something that comes through in some of those tactical kinetic encounters that you describe in the book and I'm glad we got to include it in um, the interview. So this book, as you described in your initial answer and sort of introduction, has in some ways kind of been something you've been working on, or at least working towards for quite a while, but it's done now in that it's published and out. So what are you working on next?
0: The prequel. Um, (laughs) The original version of this book, (laughs) the original version of the book uh, began with the campaigns of Alexander the Great um, in the region and kind of the famous um, either perhaps fictive um, encounters of Alexander with the high priest. So in any case, around 332 and um, brought the story of um, kind of the uh, appearance of Greeks and Macedonians into this region in large numbers down from 332 to the time of Pompey and then, um, Herod the great, the prequel, there was a first version of it. It was 400 pages long. So if you add the 400 pages (laughs) to the 744 of the, the freedom of Zion, you've got a 1200 page book and, you know, Yale and everybody else, um, (laughs) <laughs> thought that was crazy crazy. So so yeah, so that's what I'm uh doing is trying to um kind of get that up to um the level that the I hope the freedom uh for the freedom of Zion is.
1: Wonderful. Okay, well, best of luck with that endeavor. Um, and while you are off doing that. Um, Listeners can read the book that we've mostly been talking about this episode up until these last few minutes. Um, The book is titled For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, published by Yale University Press in 2022. Thank you so much, Dr. Guy Rogers, for being with us on the podcast.
0: It was my pleasure. A lot of fun.